0: But as we look in, into God's Word this morning, uh, Philippians chapter 3, I just want to read the first three verses again, um, just to kind of remind us where we're at. And um, hopefully you should have memorized by now. But uh, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision, or the true circumcision, who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, I just want us to remember that um, as we've been looking through this portion of uh, Scripture, we've been looking at it from kind of the point of view of what are the marks of a true believer? Because especially today in America and, and even in the world, it seems that everybody's so-called a Christian. And so we were trying to draw some lines in the sand to kind of distinguish what is truly a believer. Who is truly a believer? And we looked at, in the, in the past couple weeks, we looked at the aspect of circumcision and, and their concern with that, and, and we uh, had a message about that. And then uh, last uh, time together, we talked a little bit about the uh, the evil workers that he talks about in verse two. It's not that they weren't doing some good, but they were doing it with evil motives, and he describes them as dogs and evil workers and the, 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 the mutilation or the false circumcision. Um, and now we come to verse 3, where it really points out for us very succinctly in three little points um, what a true believer is. And um, the five marks were the first one, was they, they rejoiced in the Lord in verse 1. Secondly, they practiced some form of discernment True believers do. And then three, four, and five we'll look at today. But last week we looked at five characteristics of that, that somebody may have or may hold on to, but they don't verify your salvation. And those five things, just in, in in review real quickly, five characteristics that do not verify real salvation is first of all a hope based on a past event. In other words, something that you're holding on to in your life and, and at one point maybe you walked down an aisle or you raised a hand or you said a prayer or you did something like that and that's all you got. God hasn't worked in your life since then. If somebody comes up to you and says, are you a Christian? Your answer is, well, yes, I am. And, you, and they say, well, why do you think you're a Christian? You say, well, you know, I raised my hand one time in a service and I committed myself to the Lord. And then they say, well, what's been going on since that? And you say, well, what do you mean? You know, I made the commitment. Was God doing anything in your life today? Well, no. (laughs) Okay, they're holding on to a past event. Not that a past event is a bad thing. A lot of us have past events when we came to Christ. But just that event alone does not make you a believer. Secondly, we looked at the superficial moral life. In other words, you're living a moral life on the outside. That doesn't make you necessarily a Christian. There's a lot of good people in the world that live moral lives that are not believers. In the Lord Jesus Christ. third thing we looked at just quickly was the knowledge of the facts of the gospel. How many times have you run into somebody and boy they can they can tell you the gospel just like you can tell them and they know it all but they know it all up here they don't have it in their heart it hasn't made a change in their life and so they're holding on to their knowledge of scripture they can quote verses they can do all sorts of you know things but that knowledge alone, just because you know about Christ, just because you maybe you were raised in a Christian home and you know the facts of the gospel, that does not transform someone's heart. It's, it's God that has to transform the heart from the inside. The, the, the fourth thing we looked at was an evidence of religious activity. We kind of spent a little time there. In other words, you come to church, maybe you got baptized, maybe you say rosary beads, maybe you do all sorts of religious activity. That doesn't mean you're a believer. In the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean you're a true Christian. Anybody can do religious activity. You look at the Pharisees of Jesus' day; they were totally caught up in a religious activity, but He called their works wide evil. And then the fifth thing: even service in the name of Christ. You may be even rendering service in the name of Christ for 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 Him. In other words you know you could be I've heard a lot of uh, a lot of different things about pastors you know they're serving Christ and then one day they get saved you know I mean that's sometimes that's the way it is they get so caught up in the service aspect of it they think that somehow by serving the Lord they're earning some credit with God and that's just not the way it works and so he comes to this point here in verse 3 and he says for we are the circumcision or the true circumcision as opposed to the false and remember there's a thread throughout the New Testament that explains what the Gospel is. It, it kind of shares the Gospel with us over and over. The Gospels, the Acts, the Epistles, all through the New Testament, the Gospel's presented. And right alongside of that, presentation of the Gospel, there's also kind of some a line that's drawn to say, well, who is a true believer in the Gospel and who isn't? And so here, Paul is just kind of continuing that. And he says, We are the true circumcision. In other words, what he's saying to them, you remember what circumcision was. Circumcision was an outward uh, sign, an outward mark of an inward change, of a need of it for an inward change. And the Jews, unfortunately, they held on to that outward mark. And they thought, okay, I'm circumcised physically. And that's all it is. That's all that matters. And that's not what circumcision was about. But they lifted that, that procedure up To to mean that somehow if you were circumcised, you were more in favor with God than somebody who wasn't. And what Paul is saying here is that, you know what? Those guys who do circumcision just because they think that somehow by being circumcised, they're earning favor with God. That's who he's referring to in verse 2 when he calls them the mutilation. (laughs) He says they're not just circumcised. they're, They're mutilating themselves. It doesn't mean anything. There's no spiritual significance to it. Circumcision is an outward mark of an inward change. And so when Paul says there, we are the true circumcision, he's saying we are truly cleansed. That God has truly done a work in our heart. As opposed to the false. If you stop and think about it, all the things we talked about last week were all outward things. Religious activity, past events morality, living a moral life, all those things are good. Don't get me wrong. But if you're holding on to any of those things, hoping that somehow if you do all those things right, then you're going to be saved. You're not trusting in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're not trusting in the gift that He so freely gave us. And so Paul says we're the true circumcision, not just cleansed on the outside by surgery, but we're cleansed on the inside by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he continues this contrast here between the false and the true. One commentator said that in this this one book that he referred to, and I'm going to read part of of the book this morning, it was by Matthew Mead, and it was called The Almost Christian Discovered. The Almost Christian. Christian discovered. Now, the interesting thing about this book, it was written in 1661. So if you think, well, why are you preaching on this? You know, this must be a real problem in churches today. It's always been a problem. The church has always had to be on guard for those who would would come in and and claim to be a Christian, claim to be a true worshiper of Christ, and yet not having any new life, not having any transformation. And this Puritan puts it in a, in a very interesting way. So, this, this concern has been going on from the time of Jesus. Jesus had the same concern as, as we, we read in uh, John 4 this morning. But here's what he says, and it's kind of just all boiled down here, but quoting this, this uh, Matthew Mead out of his book, The Almost Christian Discovered, he says, A man may have much knowledge about Christ and yet be but almost a Christian. A man may have a great and eminent gift, yet be almost a Christian. A man may have a high profession of religion. He may be much in external duties of goodness, and yet be almost a Christian. He may go far in opposing his own sin, and yet be but almost a Christian. A man may hate sin, and yet be almost a Christian. A man may be, make great vows of promise and strong purposes and resolutions against his sin and yet almost be a Christian. A man may maintain a strife and a combat against sin and yet be almost a Christian. A man may be a member of the church, talking to the local body of believers, and yet be almost a Christian. A man may have great hopes of heaven and yet be almost a Christian. A man may under visible uh, changes, alter life, his own life, and yet be almost a Christian. A man may be very zealous in matters of religion and yet be almost a Christian. A man may be much in prayers and yet be almost a Christian. A man may even suffer for Christ's sake and be almost a Christian. A man may outwardly obey the commandments and yet be almost a Christian. A man may even perform external worship yet be almost a Christian. A man may have faith, and yet be but almost a Christian. Now if you were to reverse that list and read it back, and you just kind of pick up on some of those points, someone who has a great gift, someone who professes true religion, someone who does good duties, all those things has faith, you might say, well, that's got to be a Christian. That's what a Christian is. And what his point was, you know what, you can have all those things. But you know what, they're not enough. That's not enough. What's the evidence? What's the evidence? What's the mark of a true Christian? Well, that's what we're here in verse 3. That's what we're going to look at this morning. These three things that we're going to finish off this this third verse with, they have nothing to do with your outward conduct. They have nothing to do with your outward profession, your outward goodness. They have nothing to do with your church membership. They have nothing to do with religious duties you may perform on a regular basis. They have nothing to do with external professions that you may make. They have nothing to do with even the fact that you may not like sin in the world. You might not even like sin in your own life. See, because they have to do with what's on the inside, these three things. They have to do with what we call character. What about your nature? The the part of you that nobody sees except God. The first thing that we want to look at this morning, one of the marks of a true Christian, is a true Christian is one who worships in or by the Spirit of God. Pretty simple. One who worships in or by the Spirit of God. That's what he says there. For we are the true circumcision, and then he says, who worship God in what? Spirit. Who worship God in spirit. Spirit. To say, we worship God supernaturally, not in the natural world. His worship that's pleasing to Him is generated by the Spirit of God, not by the flesh. Not by our own will. Not by some ceremonies that we go through. Or some ritual or some moral code. That's that's not how we worship God. He's a worshiper of God who, who worships with His Spirit, the Bible says. And if you're a true believer, you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you. I mean, if you stop and think about it, the world is filled with people who worship. It really is. I mean, it's it's probably one of the biggest Christian business ventures today. The aspect of worship, music, and I mean, you've got all sorts of stuff going And it's all useful. I'm not saying it's bad stuff. But see, we have to stop and we have to say, what does true worship look like? If worship isn't prompted by the Holy Spirit that's residing within you, then it's not pleasing to God. It's that simple. A lot of the worship we see today is prompted by culture. It's prompted by tradition. It's prompted by guilt. It's prompted even by fear at times. It's prompted by the desire of a group to be accepted somehow. It's prompted by so you can look self-righteous. It's prompted by a desire uh, to be a popular person. It could be prompted by a lot of different things. But only true worship that pleases God, only true worship, is that which is prompted by the Holy Spirit of God that dwells within us as believers. We're the ones who are called to worship God in spirit and in truth. So that makes it the first mark of someone who's a true Christian, is, is they're able to worship God in spirit and in truth. Let's look at that word, worship, just a little bit this morning. It's the first quality that marks the true believer here, or the, the third in our list, but I mean one of the, 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 the first inward qualities. Turn back to, to John 4. We read that this morning. I just want us to re look at that. And as we read this morning, John is, or Jesus is confronting this Samaritan woman, and she discovered that he knows a lot more about her life than a lot of other people do. And uh, he, she began to realize there must be something special about this individual. And she said he must be a prophet, he must be from God. And he told her all about her life and her immorality and everything. Um, and in verse 19 she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. In other words, there's something different about you. And so he knows that he's sent from God. Now she knows that he's got some form of supernatural link up with the Almighty to know this information that he, that he just shared with her about herself. And so she knows that he represents and speaks for God, just because of the of the situation, what we saw. And she wants to know about worship. Now, she's a Samaritan woman, and even if she said there, she was surprised that Jesus as a Jew would even address her. And you have to understand the, the kind of the, the culture and the background here. The the Samaritans set up their worship place on Mount Gerizim. And they were basically what Samaritans were, they were half breeds. They were half Gentile, half Jew. And so they weren't allowed to just go into the temples and worship with the other uh, folks uh, of Israel. They, They had to set up their own little deal because they were excluded. They were rejected because they wanted to maintain the purity of the line and all this. And they were really despised by the Jews. And they weren't given access to the temple in Jerusalem. And so as a result of that, they still wanted to worship. And so they said, hey, we'll go set up our own temple on Mount Gerizim. And that's what they did. Now, they didn't have all scripture either. They only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so they were really kind of dealing with misinformation. They didn't have all the the information they needed to worship God properly. And so they kind of created this hybrid kind of worship that they thought was fine. And they worship on their own mountain according to their own rules and their own regulations. And she says there in verse 20, if you look at it, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, and you say, the Jews, that in Jerusalem you should worship. In other words, she's saying, well, what about, what do we do? I mean, obviously you're from God. You told me all the stuff that nobody else knows about me. So I'm going to ask you this question. It's been bothering me for a little while. What place do you worship in? You're a prophet of God. I've been confused by this. This has been on my, my heart to ask somebody. You seem like you would know. She's really saying, you know what? I want to do this the right way. I want to worship God in the right way. And you've showed me some things in my life that, yeah, I haven't led the best life. And so I want to make sure I get things right. And I'm going to start with worship in verse 21, Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you shall worship the Father. What's He saying? He's simply saying, you know what? Very soon there's going to come time. It's not going to matter where you worship. It's going to be irrelevant. And that time has arrived. It's not an issue of geography. It's an issue of spirit. It's an issue of the Holy Spirit residing within you. And so what he's saying to her is, is basically that, you know what? When it comes to worship, worship should be a way of life. Worship should be a way of life in, in the totality and w- in the way we live. And it wasn't long after he spoke those words that the, Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem happened and the temple was destroyed anyway. And they couldn't worship there. And so he's simply pointing out to her that worship is something on the inside. It's not a place. See, a lot of times we think we come here to this place to worship God. And yeah, worship goes on, hopefully, in this place. But this isn't some special place. This, you know, we could worship in a barn. You could worship in your, in your bathroom, in your shower. You can, you know, worship in your basement. You can worship on top of a mountain. I remember one time, I wasn't part of this church, but I knew the youth pastor who was, and they wanted, on Easter morning, they wanted to not have church at the church building. But they wanted to go up on a mountain and have not only a sunrise service, but have all their services up there. And the people in the church came unglued. I mean, they just went Ballistic. On this poor guy. And he's thinking, you know, community outreach, this would be great. No, we have to be in the church. That's where the people of God gather, you know. And it was this major thing, the guy almost lost his job over it. Because they were so caught up in a building, in a place, in an address. And so he says, You know what? Worship is something that happens on the inside. It's not about a place. It's not about things on the external. And the second thing he says about worship is in verse 22. He says you worship what you do not know. In other words, her worship really was an ignorant worship. She didn't have all the facts. They only accepted the Pentateuch, and therefore they were limited to their understanding not only of the Old Testament, and you know, anything else that had been revealed, they they didn't have a complete picture of it. And so they developed their own form of worship. And they thought, "Hey, we're doing the right thing." and a lot of paganism got mixed in with their form of worship and so he says very clearly first of all I want to make sure that you understand worship is not about a place and secondly it's in the spirit and secondly worship is done in a way that is in accordance with God's truth see today we live in a a society that has a lot of self-styled worship in other words You know, as long as it feels good, you can do whatever you want in worship. Doesn't matter. You know. You want to bark like a dog? Bark like a dog. Doesn't make any difference. I mean, you know, there's so many things that go on in the name of worship today within Christianity. It's so shameful. And why is that? Because they're worshiping in ignorance. Because somebody said, Oh yeah, you know, um, you know, one way you can worship God is laughing. The gift of laughing. Just start laughing. And you have whole meetings of people, all they do is gather together and they have holy laughter meetings. I mean, you laugh, it's true. And it's sad. And yet they think, hey, this is, you know, this is part of show me in the Bible. Show me, chapter verse, show me where you're called to bark like a dog or do some of these other crazy things that people do today. It's not there. You know, not that we shouldn't be free in our worship. You know, I mean, we're a pretty conservative church, but, you know, we're trying to always kind of push the envelope that way to allow people to have a little more freedom in their worship. But we also, along with that freedom, want to maintain some semblance of order. We don't want it to turn into some kind of crazy meeting on Sunday mornings. And see, a lot of times we think, well, you know, you just kind of do worship however is right for you. No, God has given us very clearly in His Word the way worship should be done. And that's what He says. He says, you don't go out and concoct your own style of worship. That's not what it's about. And He says in verse 22, we worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, God brought us revelation. And He let us know how to worship Him. The writers of the the, the Scripture were Jewish. And the Jews were given the Scripture, the oracles of God. That's what Paul says in Romans 3, chapter 9. And so the Jews had the truth in Scripture. The Samaritans didn't have it. and So they were practicing, they were worshiping in ignorance. And the time was coming when there wouldn't be the place to worship. It didn't matter. But the worship was to be in spirit and in truth. That's the essence of worship. That's who you are. There's a lot of people who go to a church building to worship. It doesn't matter if it's... Temple Beth Jacob down here on the street on Saturday, they gather, because they don't have a, a necessarily a, you know, a Jewish uh, temple anymore, so they have synagogues. So they gather together and they worship there, and then you, know, you have Buddhist places, and you have all sorts of different people, and they're all gathering to worship. But you don't go somewhere to worship God. Worship is a way of life. And that's where we got to be honest with ourselves and say, how do I look at that? Is, is worship a way of my life? Do I wake up throughout the middle of the week on a Tuesday when I don't even go to church with a worshipful heart? Or do I just reserve that segment of my life for the church, for the four walls? I go there and that's where I do my worship. And then when I go to my job, well, they see somebody totally different. But that's okay because I have all my little life compartmentalized and you know you don't want any to bleed over because that could be bad for business or whatever you know that's not the way it should be we're to worship according to the truth that God has given us Now he says in verse 23 in John there an hour is coming and now is with my arrival in other words I'm here (laughs) this is it when true worshipers, notice he says that. So there's people who worship falsely. But the true worshipers shall worship Father, the Father in spirit and truth. And then look at what he says. For, the, for such people the Father seeks to be what? His worshipers. Why did God save you? God saved you so that you could be a worshiper of Him. You could be a true worshiper. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. See, God saved us so that we could worship him. That's the truest sense of what a real Christian is. It's a worshiper. That's why in, in Philippians 3.3, 3, when he talks about the true circumcision, he says, first of all, it's those who worship in the spirit of God. And if you're worshiping in the Spirit of God, how are you going to worship? You're going to worship in Spirit and in truth. That's the way it works. In other words, a true worshiper would worship God from the inside according to the Word of God. The world's filled with people who worship God according to their own design and it's not biblical at all. They're not true worshipers. They're deceived. What's that word worship mean? Does it just have to do with music and, you know, playing nice little songs and having warm little fuzzies down deep inside? Is that what it means? Well, the word worship from the original language literally means to minister or to serve. That's what it means. To minister, to serve, to worship. It's a big word. It encompasses a lot of things. Someone defined it this way. Worship means to render respectful spiritual service. See, some some people think that worship is just saying things that praise God. Or singing things that praise God. Or even thinking things that praise God. That's worship. But that's not all it is. There's so much more to worship. Worship finally comes down to how do you live? Day in and day out. That's part of your worship. It finally comes down to how do you live? How you live? That's why in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, it says, do good and share. Why? And he goes on and he says, for with such spiritual sacrifice, such worship, God is well pleased. So it starts in your heart, but then eventually it kind of comes out in service. It's very practical. It does mean that from your heart you render, you know, homage and glory and praise and honor and adoration and respect to God. And it does mean that you sing with all your heart to the Lord. And we've done as we've done earlier. It, it, and it does mean that you pray and you, you know, lift up his virtues and praise him. But it doesn't end there. It also means that you serve him. That's that's part of worship. In fact, in the Old Testament, the priests, when they led worship, what's the first one of the first things they did? They had deeds of sacrifice that they did. They served. And that's what we've been saved to do, beloved. We've been saved to worship God. Well, what are some ingredients to this worship? Quickly. In other words, how can you look at your own heart and say, do I I worship God as a true worshiper? Well, first of all, I think, and you can jot these down, I don't think I put them in your outline. First of all, a heart of worship is is a heart that loves God and loves Christ. You can call it affection, you can call it whatever you want. But there will be a great love for Christ, a great love for God and Christ. And you'll, you'll feel that, you'll express it. When you hear songs of praise and adoration of God, your heart's lifted up inside and there's a joy there. You see, Romans eight 7 says that the unsaved person hates God. The saved person loves God. In fact, we're, we're to love Him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. But there's love for God and there's affection for Christ. It may not all be what it's supposed to be at any given time, but it's still there. So you have a love for Christ, a love for God. Secondly, there'll be a delight in God and a delight in Christ. In other words, a joy in your life. More than love, it's not just the emotion of affection. There'll be a a joy, deep-seated joy in your heart. In other words, when you sit down, you know, back home in your couch, and you're thinking about God, it brings you joy. Your thoughts about Christ will bring you delight. You love to think about Christ. You love to talk about Christ. You love to read about Christ. It brings you joy. The third word, if you're a true worshiper, I think there's a confidence there. There's a true a true worshiper has a confidence, has a peace, is able to rest. A true Christian is worshiping and is adoring with affection and delighting and joy, but he's also he has a confidence that brings him peace, that his God is there for him. That's part of worship. In other words, a true worshiper isn't necessarily concerned about their own prosperity, isn't necessarily concerned about their own things. They're at peace with their relationship with their eternal God through Christ, that all their confidence is in them. It's not in these things. You stop and you just think about that. Where do you get love? Where do you get joy? Where do you get peace? Galatians tells us, right? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. See, it all goes back to what's on the inside. If it's the Spirit of God that comes to take residence in us and it produces that affection and delight and peace from Christ... And that's that's really what worship's all about. Have you ever noticed different music even that we sing? Some of it's rejoicing. Some of it's even fun sometimes to play as musicians, just kind of a fun song. Some of it's meditative. Some of it's deep. See, all those those things in simple ways, those are expressions that songwriters put into, into music and into words to move us toward that worship of our Lord and Savior. And flowing out of that really comes a devotion, doesn't it? A devotion to Christ. Because of our worshipful heart, there's really an unusual devotion to God and to Christ. See, and then you're starting to talk inward. Your outward worship, all the music and the, the fellowship, everything that, that helps you worship physically on the outside, all of a sudden it begins to take up residence. And when you're worshiping with the Spirit of God inside you, all of a sudden you have a new devotion to Christ and to God. Someone said, it's a love that knows no rival. It's a delight that knows no equal. It's a peace that knows no comparison. Nothing competes nothing really can compete. That's the kind of heart of worship we're talking about. In Matthew 4.10 Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. See that's a characteristic of a true believer. We're the true worshipers whom the Father sought to worship Him. So how do you know you're A true Christian, when you look at your own faith, when you look at your own walk, you worship God from the heart, not because you do things on the external, but because you love God, you love Christ. And you delight in them. There's a sense of of joy there. And you know what? The only thing that can produce that is the Spirit of God. That's the only thing. You can't go out of here saying, okay, more joy, more peace, more, you know. You'll go crazy. You'll literally lose your mind if you try to manufacture something like this. It's only by the Spirit of God. Only He can produce something like this. And when you look at that, you know, you don't know who's, a, who's really a Christian and who's not. Because when you look around, what do we see? We see the external, don't we? We see what's on the outside. We see all the stuff that people are going, or we see this, or we see that. You know what? God sees the heart, He sees right to the heart. But I'm just here to tell you this morning, but you know what? You're the only one, you and God, that can know your heart. Nobody else knows your heart. You don't know what's in the heart of the person sitting next to you. They could be loathing you right now because you sat next to them. You'd never know. You'd never know. 1 Corinthians 2 says, No man knows the spirit of the man but the man. In other words, you know what's going on inside. Nobody else does. See, that's why, as we talked about last week in 2 Corinthians 13 15, Paul says what? Examine your neighbor's heart? No. He says, Examine yourself. Examine yourself. I can't examine you. I mean, I wish I could. I wish it'd be so much easier as, as someone who's who's called to teach and, and lead people to Christ if somehow I just had this this, this magic little box and I could have you come up here and I could have you step inside the box and I turn a switch and I come around and I look at the front and I say, Oh yeah, Christ is in there, you're saved. Next. Don't have to worry about that person anymore. Next, step right up here. You know, you look in there, yep, Christ is in there. Holy Spirit's in there. That'd be wonderful. You know what? I see so many people who are holding on to a false faith. They're holding on to a faith that hasn't transformed anything. They're holding on to tradition. They're holding on to all sorts of things. But boy, they can tell you the gospel. They can, you know, quote verses. They can do all sorts of things. But you ask them, "What is God doing in your life currently, recently?" They don't have an answer. Well, yeah, you know, I got saved five years ago, and they jump back to their that that event they're holding on to. It doesn't matter God hasn't done anything since that event. That doesn't bother Him much. See, when God transforms you, when God changes your heart, He changes all of it. And you have a brand new perspective on life. You have a brand new desire to do the right thing. To do what's honoring to Christ. To serve Him in a way that you could never even imagine. And it all comes from that, that person He puts inside us, the Holy Spirit. You can fool other people, you can fool me by doing outward duties, but you know what? You can be an almost Christian and nobody would ever know, but God does know it. And we need to examine our hearts. Secondly, quickly, the second mark of a, of a true Christian is not only they, they worship the Lord in spirit, but also... It says there in verse 3 of Philippians 3, rejoice in Christ Jesus. Or they glory in Christ Jesus. What does it mean? The word glory or the word uh, 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 rejoice there really has the, the idea of boasting. They boast with joy is the idea. What do you boast about? You boast about what you're proud of, right? Just any of us would boast about, you know, whether it's kids or girls is all about Jesus Christ. That's all we boast about. That's the character of a true believer. And what do you mean by that? What I'm saying is that the true Christian gives all the credit to Christ. Because that's where the credit belongs. That's the bottom line. He deserves all the glory, he deserves all the credit. You know, one way that you can discern sometimes a true believer from a false believer, a true Christian from a false Christian, is that I believe a false Christian has a false sense of accomplishment. They talk about their own credit. They talk about their own religious duties, how they do things that earn favor with God or if they do more good things than bad things then somehow God will accept them more. They believe somehow that they have an ability to please God in some way and gain merit for themselves, gain approval for themselves. And I'll just tell you, I mean, growing up in the Catholic church, that's one of the, after I figured out what what everything was all about, that's one of their doctrines that I still today cannot conceive how they believe that. Because what they believe is basically that deeds that I do earn merit for myself before God. In other words, I have to do certain works and that earns me approval for God. But if I earn more merit than I need to get into heaven, that's okay. There's kind of an overflow account. Literally. Literally. And and basically what you can do is you can earn credit for somebody else's salvation. It goes into a treasury of merit, they call it. And it can be applied to somebody else to get them out of the place they call purgatory, which is in between heaven and hell. See, what that says is that I, I can not only earn merit for my own salvation, I can earn my own salvation, but I can earn somebody else's. so-and-so, you know, I know they passed away and, you know, they were kind of rough around the edges, but, you know, we're going to earn them to heaven. I mean, that's a lie, beloved. The Bible says what? After death comes what? Judgment. I mean, you, you know, to be absent from the body is, if you're, if you're a true believer, is to be present with the Lord. There's no in-between place. There's no holding tank. I mean, you know, it's just, It's crazy. But a true believer will never claim any merit and never claim any credit, because they understand that it's it's on the Christ of on the cross of Christ. It, that's where he earned it. He deserves all the glory. That's why in 1 Corinthians one thirty uh, 31 Paul says, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He says it again in Second Corinthians ten seventeen. Drawing it back to Philippians, you have to understand these people who were being circumcised, that was their point of pride before God. Look at me, I'm circumcised. I have the the physical act done. So God loves me more. You poor Gentiles, you you have to be circumcised. And that's what they were going around telling people. And that's why Paul brought it up. That's why he was so concerned about it. See, Christ is always the focus. Christ should always be the focus of any ministry, of any church, of any believer's life. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 2, I'm determined to know nothing among you. Nothing. I don't care about anything else except what? Jesus Christ. That's all I want to know. That's all. He gets all the credit, he gets all the glory, he gets all the you know, my pride goes to him, all my boasting is in him. You just turn ahead, we're going to get into this, but over in verses 8 and 9 of Philippians 3, Paul even says, You know what? I count all things lost for the excellence of knowing the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them but rubbish, dung, garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law that's not going to do you any good but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith then I know him and know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead You say, well, to be a Christian, do you have to acknowledge Jesus as Lord? Sure you do. I remember in college, I took a class and they they were teaching us that, well, you can come to Christ as Savior. He can be your Savior, but He doesn't have to be your Lord. You can make Him Lord later, you know, once you get all the pieces of the puzzle together. You know, it's just kind of silly when you think about it. Why would you want to come halfway? Either Christ is the Lord of your life or not. We don't make him Lord. He already is Lord. It's a matter of acknowledging him. It's like me saying today, well, I'm going to make President Bush the President of the United States. you're saying, you're stupid. Why would you say something like that? He's already the President of the United States. Well, not to me, he's not. Not until I make him the President of the United States. That, that would be just an ignorant argument. And see, we, we fail to understand that God already gave Jesus a name, which is above all names, and it wasn't Jesus. It was Lord. And so when you come to Christ for salvation, you're acknowledging Him as Lord of your life. In other words, you're saying, you know what, I'm not going to do it my own way anymore. I'm not going to go my own path. I'm going to yield it all up for you. I'm going to lay it all on the block. There's a lot of people who want... Christ to be a a priest who pays the penalty for their sin. But not the prophet who tells them what they have to do. (laughs) And certainly not the king who has any authority over them. A lot of people will take Christ as priest because he did pay the penalty for their sin. A lot of people want the benefits of the cross, but they don't want to bow to the crown. And it's so important to understand that. You can't become a Christian and live life your own way. That's not what we're called to do. A true Christian is a a person who is all about Christ. Christ is all in all. He's our life. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. And in Him we boast, not ourselves. Glory in nothing but the cross of Christ. And we're determined to know nothing but the cross of Christ that's a true Christian one writer put it this way Christians are the circumcision precisely because they take no pride in what they might do by themselves to earn God's favor but only in what God in his favor has already done for them in Christ Jesus we need the attitude of the prodigal father I've sinned against heaven and in your sight And I am no more worthy to be called your son. I'm not worthy of anything. None of us are. All glory goes to Christ. The true Christian is really consumed with Christ. What are you rejoicing in? What's your boasting in? Is it in Christ? Or is it in yourself? Last thing, true Christian is they put no confidence in the flesh. That's what he says in verse 3. He says, Not only do they worship God in spirit, they glory or they rejoice in Christ Jesus. They also have no confidence in the flesh. Kind of goes along with the other two, doesn't it? If all the glory goes to God and all the boasting is in Christ, then certainly you can't put any confidence in your flesh. What did it earn you? Where did it get you? What did it gain you? Nothing. All the flesh will do is destroy you. What do I mean by flesh? What what, what am I saying there? I mean unredeemed humanness. My own ability away from God. That's the flesh. That's what he's referring to. And Paul's saying, don't put any confidence in that. See, that's different than the Jews of the day. That's where they put all their confidence, that's where they put all their their boasting. They were descendants of Abraham physically. They had physically circumcised themselves, and they performed all the ceremonies, and they did all these outward religious duties, and they kept the Mosaic law, they thought, and traditions, and all this, and it was all flesh. And God's up there saying, you know what that gets you? On my scale, big fat zippo, zero, nada, nothing. And how many times do we in our own Christian lives think that we're doing something good and in the back of our minds that haunting question, wow, well, maybe maybe I'll get that promotion if I do this. Or maybe, you know, we're bartering with God. That's doesn't work that way. He just doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I hear it all the time sometimes. You talk to some people and, you know, they're, they're getting older and, you know, they're having physical problems. And, why? Why is this happening to me? And I look at him, and I go, well, what do you mean? Well, why am I sick? Why is my body giving out? Because you're old. Eventually, you're going to die. That's what happens. I mean, come on. Why why do they think that God, you know, has some judgment on their life? I mean, that's crazy. I mean, if you're a true believer, if you're in Christ, I mean, yeah, God, if you're stepping out of bounds, he's going to discipline you. And he can discipline you through physical ailment, he can discipline you any way he wants. But every time something happens in our life, I mean, especially when it's something bad, you know, we look up, okay, God, what did I do to deserve this? See, confidence in the flesh dends the soul. If you're sitting here this morning and all your confidence is in your flesh, you know, you're on a fast track to hell, my friend. And you need to stop and you need to say, you know what? He's right. Because the Bible clearly says, all of sin fall short of the glory of God. There's not somebody out there that has enough goodness in their own heart that God's going to look down and say, oh, you're, you're really special. You don't have to go through the cross. You don't have to you know, die to yourself. You don't have to do anything. You just come here this back way. I'll open up a new door for you and you can come in without all the sacrifice of being a Christian and all this other stuff. Don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. You're deceived. You're, you're, you're lying to yourself. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And where does he stand with you this morning? See, true Christians are, are, are people of humility. Granted, we have our moments of pride. We all do. Because we're, we're still in this sinful flesh. But when it comes right down to it, we've repented of that. We've turned away from that. That doesn't please us anymore. See, and that's part of a, a true Christian's character. And just because you feel bad about sin, that doesn't make you a Christian. Unsaved people feel bad about sin. See, there's a difference between natural conviction and spiritual repentance. Spiritual repentance is something that God does deep in your heart. Natural conviction is just, you know, wow, boy, that's that's too bad. The guy got shot, somebody robbed the store. Boy, I don't like people like that. That doesn't make you a Christian if you look down on that. Natural conviction deals with conduct. Spiritual repentance deals with my condition before God. Natural conviction deals with the symptoms, but spiritual repentance makes a person really uh, deal with the disease, the sin that's there. When somebody is convicted naturally, they shy away from God out of fear. But when God convicts your your heart in spiritual repentance, it's a whole different thing. You run to God because you realize you need forgiveness. Spiritual repentance puts no confidence in the flesh at all because you realize you're rotten to the core. Nothing good in any of us. That's where God wants us. That's where God desires us to be. Worshipping in the spirit of the truth, giving all the credit to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's our only pride, our only joy, with a repentance which not only turns from the, the wickedness of the world, but sees our sinful condition for what it is. And realize the only way out of that mess is through the grace that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's the true circumcision. That's the person who's not only marked on the outside, but they're marked on the inside. Their hearts are transformed. And it's our prayer this morning that as we come before our communion time, we practice an open communion time. In other words, it's it's open to those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And as men pass around the the bread, we kind of hold on to it and we'll all partake together and the same with the juice. But this is a symbol of what God has done through Christ on our behalf. And as we come to this time, the Bible is very clear that we need to stop and examine our own heart. Because we shouldn't come to this table in a haphazard way. Because even though it's just a piece of cracker and some grape juice, what it symbolizes is so much more. It symbolizes everything that that God has done through Jesus Christ for us. All that He gave, all He sacrificed. And it's our prayer this morning that you truly know the salvation that God sent His Son to bring. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we come before You this morning, and Lord, we ask that You would prepare our hearts for our communion time. And Lord, we've been reminded today of the just the incredible majesty of Your Word and how it penetrates our hearts, how it opens our understanding to the way things are, even though sometimes we don't like to hear it. And we pray this morning that you would minister to each heart. May the true circumcision rejoice this morning in the grace of Christ. May the false circumcision come to true faith. Lord, we pray that you would save them, make them true worshipers of you. Make them those who can only boast in Christ and who turn from our own flesh to you. We pray this this morning in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.